0: Tonight, I will uh, Hashem, try to expound a little further on the halachis of Bishul Yisrael, provide some examples of some modern day application of these halachis, and uh, try to walk the audience through some of the uh, type of things that Hexherim have to grapple with in regards to these halachis. And then as time, time warrants, Bishel Hashem will segue into the of Yisrael um, once we conclude with the Bishul Yisrael portion. So just to start with, I want to point out that um, some foods do exist that can actually uh, have the shiloh and the din of pas yisrael and so yisrael wrapped in one. An example, of that would be a knish. So for example, a potato knish, the dough portion would be a question of pas, and the potato portion would be subject to the halachis of bishel. So if the uh, potato knish was not cooked by a Jew, then the potato portion of that Food would be not permissible to eat because it's bisholakum. The uh, dough portion, if it's uh, if you can scrape off the potato, would potentially be permissible for those that consume paspalta, bread baked oh. by a non-Jew. <laughs> the other,
1: huh?
0: oh yeah. On the other hand, when it comes to a knish that's made, for, let's say a meat knish, where the um, in the same scenario if it's cooked by a non-Jew, uh, the meat of course is forbidden to eat as bisholakum, But in this case, the dough portion is also forbidden to consume because the meat is fatty and the fattiness of the, of the meat will permeate the dough. And therefore the entire dough would then take on the status of bishalakam would not be permissible to eat. Just, give you, just to show you an example of how things are, are viewed and, and dealt with. Um, now in the food industry, we have lots of foods that are cooked and in manufacturing settings that are only partially edible. Examples of that would be, let's say potato flakes, or parboiled rice. By the time the consumer, consumer gets them to their home, they're not yet edible. The consumer is expected to finish off the cooking process at home. So as long as the food is not yet edible, then the Hashem can certify the product without making Bishri Yisrael, even though the food itself would require Bishri Yisrael, because the Jew is allowed to finish off the cooking at home. Now, the Heksher is not going to certify the product as Bishul Yisrael because it's not Bishul Yisrael, but as long as a a Jew finishes off the cooking process at home, it would render the product Bishul Yisrael. Examples of this also include things such as diced potatoes, rice flour, beans, and and things of that nature. Pre-cooked couscous would also be an example of that. All those foods, um, you you finish off the cooking at home and you would make it Bishul Yisrael. Apricot kernels, which are also used in the, in the food industry, are, do not require Bishel Yisro, even though they're not edible raw without cooking, because they're not considered to be, um, they're not considered to be khashuv. Beer, which is a drink, does not have to be Bishel Yisro, even though it goes through a, a process, because we have a k'lal and a halacha in Kevel when it comes to drinking products, They're, they're any drinks are something that you would really have on the go. They're not necessarily connected to a meal and therefore they're not subject to the laws of something that you would eat together with bread or you invite your friend over. It's something that's consumed more on a casual basis. Cacao or cocoa beans and the like coming from the cocoa bean itself. The cocoa bean itself has to be roasted to be able to uh, extract the cocoa powder and the cocoa liquor to therefore make chocolate. So the chocolate is a cooked product. Um, What's the Heter for not requiring Bishri Yisrael? So there's many reasons for it. The the cacao, in most cases, is actually steamed. Um, So then you get into the steam heater, but you don't even have to come onto that because the cacao bean itself um, and the the, the chocolate that's made thereafter is really in the category of a snack food and not something that you would uh, make a meal out of, per se. You don't eat together with bread and therefore it would go into the category of snack foods and, and not require bishli yisrael. Chicken or meat or fish, of course, does require bishli yisrael because that's, those are basic food staples that are of a royal nature, the in nature. Coffee and tea also do not require bishli yisrael. I think I touched on that last week. The main ingredient there would be water itself and, uh, and therefore it does not require bishli yisrael because water is edible and something we drink raw. It does say in the Gemara Shabbos that an Adam Choshev, a very very choshev person, can be stringent upon themselves to only have such things that are cooked But that's something for a very very lofty individual. It's not for the for the uh, for most people. Cranberries um, again are edible raw. No issue with that. Donuts it would depend if they're if they're deep fried. Then it would go into the category of. Um, it would not require Bishri Yisrael because it's not considered to be of a, of a royal nature. If it's baked it would go into the category of pas and then it would be subject to those laws. If it's either pas yisrael or if it's not pas yisrael it would go into the hetero pas palter for those that are linked in that regard. Eggplant is very interesting because it's an example of a food that depending on how it's prepared it will determine whether or not it needs to be made Bishri Yisrael. So if you cook eggplant or fry eggplant as a whole piece of eggplant itself, it's, it is considered fancy. You can have eggplant parmesan, you can have other dishes that are made with eggplant, and it would be served at a fancy meal as a dish, and therefore it would be required to make gashl Yisrael. On the other hand, eggplant dip, which is just used to serve other foods, so therefore it's considered really tough to other foods, it's really there to serve other foods, and it loses a hashivas in such a case many poskim, many halachic authorities would maintain that in that format would not require Bishri Yisrael. So again, depending on the present final presentation of the food, that will dictate whether it needs Bishri Yisrael, which gets back to the discussion we had last week, whether you go after the final presentation of the food or the origin of the food, and according to most opinions, halachically speaking, you go after the final presentation of the food, even though if someone wants to be stringent and be machmir, they could go after the origin of the food, if they like eggs have to be made bisho style even though opera singers will will consume a raw egg just to help them with their voice but it's not considered to be something that's a societal norm people don't do that on a, on a regular basis and therefore we, we say butla it's a and we go after what's considered the masses a normal thing normal thing for the masses and it's not normal to eat eggs raw and therefore uh, since eggs are something that would be chashev, they are of a royal nature, they have to be cooked, Bishel Yisrael, by a Jew's participation. Falafel balls are, uh, sometimes they have some ingredients that are not edible raw, and our place holds that they don't have to be made Bishel Yisrael because they're not chashev, they're not of a royal nature, they're not something that you would necessarily serve at a fancy event, and therefore would not require Bishel Yisrael. They are usually, often they are sold ready to eat. Um, and therefore the question is a real question, a valid question. Milk also does not have to be as Yisroel because it's a drink and it's uh, a person could drink milk that's unpasteurized, even though most people don't. But again, it is a drink and that's another reason why it's not a problem. Nuts. Um, are edible raw, even though a lot of nuts are sold in a, a format of not raw, they're roasted or what have you. But the fact is that, that they are edible raw, and therefore there's no Bishri Yisrael issue with nuts being roasted by a non-Jew in a kosher responsible manner. Potatoes, all varieties, um, do have to be made Bishri Yisrael, as long as they're served in a of in a, in a manner. As I said last week of potato chips, are different stories of snack food, but any type of potato dish, a baked potato or mashed potatoes would be have, would have to be made visually as well because they are of a royal nature. I also want to add that in some cases, you'll have like rice would be cooked as a starter for a culture and um, then used to start other foods. In such situations, a person should be encouraged to ask a shiloh by their price because. In that case, the rice is not really considered to be fully cooked because it's only used as a starter to go into other foods, which gets us into the discussion of the Afgas Reichel, um, the, the Beis Yosef, who was mekel and said that if a food is only in the middle of its preparation, preparatory process, it does not have to be Bishul Yisrael because it's not considered to be fully ready, ready to eat. Um, so that's, that just becomes a Harsha'ilah, becomes something to discuss with one's Allahic authority, but uh, there's there probably is room room for leniency if it's just being used as a starter. Soups have to be made because the, the, the typical uh, societal norm would be to actually eat soup at a, in, a more, in a more formal setting, at a meal, and um, it's often eaten together with bread, and therefore would have to be made if the ingredients are not edible raw, etc. Veggie burgers are an interesting discussion because they're, they're becoming increasingly popular, and a lot of them have ingredients in it that are not edible raw. They may have beans inside there. They may have other things inside there that are not edible raw. Um, but the veggie burger itself is still considered to be a food that's not so of not such a, a royal nature. It's more of a bit of a it's a bit of a fast food, even though it's a bit a bit healthier. So, to the best of my knowledge, all national still consider veggie burgers as a food that does not yet require Vishal Yisrael, although we do monitor it because there is a trend in the industry that is moving towards, I would say towards uh, plant-based foods. And as that trend increases and grows, it's possible we'll come to a point one day when these veggie burgers would be considered to be Malachi. But today the consensus amongst the authorities that we consult with is that we have not yet reached that point and therefore they do not have to be made Vishal Yisrael. Additionally, when a person cooks them at home, they they finish off the cooking, although sometimes the veggie burger is ready to eat before you buy it, and sometimes it's not ready to eat. So if it's ready to eat before you buy it, you have to come onto the hetter that it's not considered to be a hush of food. Some veggie burgers, parenthetically, are also made through a steam process, which would be another reason for leniency, but most of them are not made in that kind of a process. Beets, I believe we discussed last week about the difference of chrein, um, the ok considers beets to be something that's that has to be cooked but some agencies are lenient because in the format of chrein it could be uh, consumed raw and therefore in some applications it would actually be considered to be edible raw and therefore would not have to be made Israel, according to some opinions this obviously is a factor if one has a case of a situation where there's other mitigating circumstances breakfast cereals such as cornflakes rice krispies which are not made from the five grains so therefore there would be a shila obviously are, Yisro are not a problem because for many reasons, because the way they're presented is not of a royal nature and often they're, they're usually steam-cooked or they're uh, extruded or they're puffed so they're going through a process that's not the kind of process that the fachamim prohibited in the classical form of cooking and therefore would not be problematic. Okay, that pretty much concludes what I wanted to share with everybody regarding Bishul Yisroel, and now we're going to segue into Chol of Yisroel, and we're going to start with a little bit of an intro on the halachas of Chol of Yisroel. So allow me to begin. With regards to Chol of Yisroel, there's a—it's um, the third in our set of halachas. We started with with Pas Yisroel and then Bishul Yisroel and Chol of Yisroel. Shulchan Aruch goes in this order. It starts in the same order, and we're following the order of Shochanarach. And the reason is because the Torah teaches us we go menakal la covid, We go from the easier set of halaches to the more stringent set of halaches. And the sets of halaches of Chol of Yisrael are more stringent and more strict than that of their former counterparts of bishli Yisrael and of Pas Yisrael. As we learned, for example, last, last week we, we discussed this, that by bishli Yisrael, there are opinions there is the main opinion that says that uh, cooking Bishalakam foods would make the vessel that one cooks them in not kosher as well, even though there's an opinion that says it doesn't make the vessel not kosher, but the general way we we follow is that it does make the vessel not kosher under most circumstances, unless there's an unusual situation at play. Um, With regards to Chol of Yisrael, um, if someone cooks chal vakum, milk that was milked without a true present, I'm not getting into Rabbi Meishe Feinstein Teter at this moment, um, it would make the vessel not kosher, would, would then render the vessel not kosher, and one would have to get into Takasha the vessel, according to all opinions based on, on that. So chal v'israel is more strict than not chal v'israel, and there's a reason for this, and allow, allow me to explain. With regards to Pasisrol and bishe the primary reason why the chacham established these laws, as we discussed, is together is a protective measure against intermarriage. And a secondary reason was may, maybe the non-Jew or the non-religious Jew would mix in, would mix in something not kosher into the food mix. With regards to non hol Yisrael foods, there's a different kind of set of concerns. And that is, if there's no Jew present at the time of the milking, this concern may be non-kosher milk, like so, for example, milk from a pig would be mixed into this pool of milk. So we see from here that the chashash, the concern by Bishol and by Tash was that if we're going to dine or if we're going to eat breads that were made by a non-Jew, we might come to become friendly with them, which could then lead to a situation where we're going to become friendly. Our, our daughters could marry their sons. Our sons can marry their daughters. It could lead to another situation which would be forbid, forbidden. But the actual act itself would not be a forbidden act. With regards to Chal of Yisrael, the concern is immediate, that if we don't have a Jew present at the time of the milking, the concern is that this milk itself could have Chal of tummy, in it milked from a non-kosher animal, so it could be also De Raisa, uh, forbidden from the Torah. So since the concern is much more immediate, that's why the, the laws are stricter, and that's why according to all opinions, the vessel itself would, would, would require kosherization if it was used in a hot process, or if it was sat cold for 24 hours in one place. So, um, because again, th- that gives us an insight as to why the, the halachas of Chal Israel are stricter, because the concern is immediate and there's much more at stake. So again, just uh, similar to what we said last week with going to the other halachas, it's an Isidra Abana, it's a rabbinic prohibition, and it's only in only with regards to consuming Chal akum is the prohibition. We're allowed to have benefit, meaning we're, Jews are allowed to do business with not Chal Israel products, they're allowed to sell it, allowed to have benefit from it, but we're not allowed to consume it. And uh, as I said, the, the main chashash is, the main concern is that maybe there'll be some Chol of tommy, milk from a non-kosher animal, will get mixed into the milk, and would render the milk Asadar forbidden from the Torah. Now, when does a Jew actually have to be present at the time of the milking? So this gets into a whole discussion of how farms are set up. Um, in general, L'Chadchilo, from the onset, a Jew should be there at the time of the milking before the milking actually begins, to make sure that all the vessels that, that are going to be used for the milking, where the milk is going to actually go into, where they're going to actually collect the milk, are clean. Because if the vessels are not clean, and there's some leftover non-chol milk, then we'll get into a situation where we're going to be mevat iser. We're going to take iser milk, milk chol v'akam, we're going to now mix it with chol v'israel and we're going to nullify it, hopefully 1 in 60, but we're not allowed to do that with from the answer. Therefore, we have to make sure the vessels are clean. Um, and, and, and therefore, you need a mashkiach to make sure that the entire milking stations, everything is clean before they begin the onset of milking. Now, with regards to the herd itself, there are two different types of uh, setups and situations I'd like to explain. Number one is if you have a chaya temeya in the Eder, if you have a non-kosher animal, for example, let's say there's a pig running around on that farm, then the halacha is that you have to have a mashkiach to there the entire time. So in all cases, you have to have the mashkiach there at the beginning of the milking to make sure that the vessels are clean. Um, but if you have a chayatme, if you have a non-kosher animal running around and there's a concern maybe milk from that non-kosher animal can, mix it, can get mixed in, then you have to have a mashkiach to meet there the entire time. The mashkiach cannot leave premises. On the other hand, if you have a situation where you remove or there never were any non-kosher animals at this herd, at this particular farm from, this, from the onset. Then, once the mashkirch is there at the time of the milking, in the beginning, a mashkiach can come and go at a frequency known as yitzvah nichnas um, which that actual time spent itself is debatable amongst various I'll, I'll explain in a moment. But a mashkiach can come and go, provided it's done in a way where the, the farm owners and the, uh, the, the, the staff do not know when he's leaving and do not know his schedule, and he can pop in at any time. Now, as far as what's considered to be an acceptable frequency for and v'niknas, some Echsheim allow the mashkirch to leave for a half an hour at a time. Again, provided that there's only kosher animals at the herd, some Echsheim will allow the mashkirch even to leave for an hour at a time. Some of them will maybe even stretch a little bit longer. But um, it's very important that the staff do not know the mashkirch schedule and they feel like the mashkirch can come back at any moment. That's why, as I said in the first class, and v'niknas, that you feel the sense that as soon as you go out, you feel vanichnas. you're gonna come back in and feel that sense of the presence of the mashkiach. That's what's most important. In general, when it comes to milking itself, there are different types of farms. If it's a very small farm, you can the milking sometimes can be done within two hours, maybe even three hours. So it, as, at, a, at a minimum, you have to have what's called reishis, emtzah and seif. So you have to have a mashkiach there at the beginning of the milking, again, to make sure the vessels are clean and the has to be there in the middle of the milking and then at the end of the milking. That's a a basic minimum. If it's a very long milking that could take many, many hours, Mashkirch will obviously be there many, many times in the middle because it's not advisable for Mashkirch to be away from the milking for more than an hour at a time. Preferably, it should be a half an hour. In addition, I want to say that um, a lot of these farms, mashkiacham have cameras that that assist them in their work of, of, of supervising and overseeing the actual milking process. That itself is a whole discussion, which I'm going to get into soon, but uh, everyone agrees, all authorities agree, that the camera system to, to help the mashkiach do their existing work with the being on-premises and then going coming in and out every half an hour or sometimes every hour, that is wonderful. Uh, whether or not you can have a Chol saw without a mashkiach present with only cameras, that is a hotly debated topic, as I'm going to get into a little bit later on in the class. But, but as I said, if you have a mashkirch to me, the, the cameras certainly can be used to help the existing mashgich on the premises. Now, with regard to the actual the actual prohibition of cholav there's a there's a discussion in, in, in the in poskim whether or not this was something that's just a chashash, is it just a chashash, just a concern? Maybe the the non Jew is going to mix in some non kosher milk into the mix. And that's why the Chacham established the laws that you have to have a mashkiach there at the time of the milking. But if you have a situation, for example, where we have an example, let's say you have an island and this island only has kosher animals on the island. And in such a scenario, there's no concern about the non-jew putting in bringing in any non-kosher animals because there are no non-kosher animals and the bridges are cut off and, and they couldn't come bring an animal for several hours. And, and, and you know you're, you're overseeing that. So according to that first way of learning, then there'll be no concern of Chalwakum of, uh, of then. But according to the second way of learning, which is that besides the concern about mixing in non-kosher milk into the mix, there's also Gzairz and there's also a blanket, kind of like an umbrella policy, rabbinically, from the rabbis that any milk that was milked without a Jew present is forbidden. So even in such a case where you're on a desert island where there are no non-kosher animals present, then it would still be forbidden because you have the rabbinic prohibition to grapple with, which has not yet been addressed. And the minigas to be machmer, like the second opinion that there's that also a Xiris chacham and also a Rabbinic Prohibition at play. And therefore you have to have somebody overseeing the mashkiach present. Um, with regards to, to butter, Shokanarikh, as you learn, there's a there's a difference with butter than with regards to milk, because you can only make butter from kosher milk. So if you see butter, then you have a telltale sign that it's coming from kosher milk. So, there's a discussion amongst the gaonim about this as well. Um, there's a concern maybe the Nanju from the onset had in mind just to, to milk the milk as a drink, and then they later decided to make it into butter. So, if they just decided to make it as a drink, maybe they then mixed in some non kosher milk and then they turned it into butter. And it's true that the non kosher portion of the milk will not curd, will not turn into butter, but maybe it's going to be stuck in the pockets, in the grooves of the butter, and therefore you still have a problem, or, or maybe not. So, th- this is a discussion. Uh, factually speaking, um, 50 or 60 years ago, I verified this with some older Hasidim, that even Hasidim were very, very careful with Chol Yisrael. They consumed non-Chol straw butter, Breakstone butter, which was just pure butter on this basis because it, it's obviously coming from kosher milk um, because there was no Chol Yisrael butter around many, many years ago. Today it's available, so it's different. I also want to mention that today's butter is different for another reason because they often add other ingredients to the butter. They might add whey, W-H-E-Y, a byproduct of the cheese making process, and therefore it would need to be chol so regardless. Um, but but if it's just pure butter, you do have their opinions that are lenient about it, um, and some people are lenient about it. Again, if you have a, you're in a place where you can get chol so butter, all the be- all the better, and obviously that's great. But uh, many many years ago, it wasn't always available, and therefore they, they came onto that leniency. Okay, so uh, now let's discuss the, the, uh, the thing I mentioned earlier about video cameras and Chol Yisrael. There's a tshuva from Harav al-Yashuv and Harav Fosner, that they said that in Eretz Yisrael, in, in, a, in a country like Israel, which is a Jewish country, largely so, if you have a Jewish-owned farm, then you, if you have a mashkiach visiting the farm five times a month, which is a little bit more than once a week, and you have another mashkiach who's monitoring cameras that you have set up throughout the plant and is watching the chaliva, the milking through cameras all the time, which is commonly known today as video Chol they said it's acceptable to make that and consider it Chol of Yisrael. On that basis, many hachshedim and Yisrael, not all, many of them do certify products as Chol The hachshedim that to my knowledge, do not accept such a, a system as Chol are the Eda Haredes and Harav Landau. they don't do that as Cholvi Some Echsheidim will accept such milk from Eretz Yisrael as Yisrael, but wouldn't certify it that way. If they were in a situation where they were going to certify it, they would do even better. Um, everyone agrees, obviously, if you have a mashkiach on the premises itself, coming and going, as I said, every half an hour, every hour, that's the best outside of Eretz Yisrael there's no acceptable heter for, for working with a video Chol Yisrael system. Even though there are some very weak echshem that may engage in such practices, it's not considered an acceptable system outside of Eretz Yisrael. There's also um, something else to be aware of, that some farms may be owned by non-Jews, and the heter was only given to Jewish-owned farms. So if it's a non-Jewish-owned farm, that wouldn't qualify either. There's also another thing I want to mention, which is uh, very relevant today, is the thing, the tshuva from the Hartsvi, Harav Tzvi Pesach Frank. In the sefer, he wrote that milk powder is different than regular fluid milk. So he said the milk powder was not included in the prohibition of the chol of akum Now, because they didn't have milk powder at the times of the Isra Chazal, the times of the Gemara when the Chachamah made this prohibition, so based on that, he says that milk powder is permissible. Even though milk powder is coming from fluid milk, it's the new entity and we don't have the power to make new prohibitions, so to speak. And so if you look on a lot of products, uh, products that are coming to Eretz Yisrael from the US, from outside, United, outside Eretz Yisrael, imported into the Eretz Yisrael, they have to be either Chol of Yisrael, or they have to only be what's called Afkas Chol of Nahri, which is made from milk powder. They wouldn't allow products coming into Eretz Yisrael that are fluid milk that are not Chol of Yisrael. The fact is that most manufactured products that are being exported to you throw well, from America, or from Canada, whatever it is, are gonna be using a powdered milk application because powdered milk has a shelf life of about two years and fluid milk has a shelf life of about two weeks. So you're talking about a uh, hundred times greater plus shelf life in, in, in a powder format. So it's much more uh, attractive and it's much more attractive and much more feasible for manufacturers to go with the powder format. So most manufactured products will use actual powdered milk Um, and therefore we qualify for the Rabbeinu to bring it into Eretz Yisrael. Just a a piece of of information to share with you. Okay, another thing I wanted to mention is that um, with regards to Chalb Yisrael, there's some other issues that come into play. There are um, what's known as DA cows, DA stands for displaced um, abomasum, abomasum, excuse me. Um, And that's where the animal, one of the stomachs of the animal is kind of out of whack and uh, will have a lot of gas in it. Um, I was told by some dairy experts that in countries, in places, let's say in California, where they do a lot of grazing, they eat a lot of grass, that the animals te- seem to have less gas there, but in, in somewhere in like Wisconsin, where they're eating more grain, that seems to give them more gas, and, and the, the incidence of, of DA cows um, are a little bit higher. Once you, to, to be able to release the gas from the stomach of the animal, because the animal could die without, without treating the animal, um, most processes today involve puncturing the stomach of the animal, which would render the animal a, at least a suffic treifa or, or definitely a treifa, which creates a problem. So when it comes to, uh, to, to, to chaliva, to milking itself, we're not allowed to use a DA cow for Khalvi Yisrael when we have a mashkiach to be the on-premises, when we know for sure this animal is a DA cow. How do we, how do we verify whether or not it's a DA cow? There are two classic methodologies to do so. Number one is to check veterinarian records to see whether or not this cow went through that operation. Typically, it's only about seven to five, five to seven percent of cows in a herd go through this operation, um, or to see a scar by the stomach. Sometimes one can actually detect a scar. What what should be done before we do a hove soil milking is to remove all the DA cows from the herd so that you have a pure kosher uh, pool to fish from. Not fish from, but rather to milk from. In this case, um, and that would create a, a healthy situation. With regards to non chob straw milk, um, it's, it's, a, it's a question that's often that is asked, but there there's no Mashiach watching the cows, and, and so they have to come on to other leniencies of bittle which is a little bit beyond the purview of today's discussion, but when you're actually watching the cow itself and seeing it there, you can't say Bittle because you see it's right there, and you can't say that it, w- it was not there. Okay, another thing based on this halacha, the, the situation of a diya cow it brings us to another fascinating insight, which we have today. The, the halacha is that a child under Barabbas Mitzvah, boy or girl, um, is ne'amon on an iser and they are trusted with regards to something that's just a rabbinic prohibition. So for example, Chol the chaliva itself, the milking process itself, to make sure that it was a kosher animal, kosher cow being milked and that the vessel was clean, those basic functions, a child is believed, if they're, of course, uh, responsible, to be able to do such a, carry such a function. But because today's milking in, r- involves other activities, such as verifying that there's no DA cows in the herd, and checking veterinarian records, and checking for scars, these are activities that are beyond the purview, or beyond the skill set of a child. Therefore, a child could not do Chol in a situation like that. If you already remove the DA cows, the child can then continue on as a Mashkiach or Mashkicha, uh, if, as, as long as they're age appropriate. And, and people ask me, at what age would you say a child is considered acceptable for that I would say if you would, you know, if you would trust your child to return a $100 bill you borrowed from a neighbor down the street and put it in their pocket. I think they're considered to be trustworthy also with regards to this as long as they know what they're doing and it will be acceptable. But again, to, to, to deal with the DA issue, it has to be done by an adult. Now, with regards to Chal Yisrael, there's another element I want to discuss, which is the spiritual aspect of Chal is a story told by the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Fridic Rebbe. Today was the Yurtzer of the Fridic Rebbe's daughter, Rebetzin Rebbe's Rebetzin. And the Fridic Rebbe writes a story in the name of the Alter Rebbe, that there was a the Alter Rebbe whose son-in-law... Started having doubts in in, in in Amunas Hashem and trust in, in God. He was starting to have doubts. And the father-in-law was very, very concerned about it. He came to the Rebbe for some spiritual guidance and advice. And the Rebbe said to the father-in-law that your son-in-law was Nikshou, below mistakenly consumed akum milk that was not Khole And that is the source of the development of Svaikas in Amuna, doubt and trust in God in this son-in-law's. Mind and in his world, and then the Fid Rebbe had to prescribe. The Alter prescribed a tikkun for this Chassid to give to his son-in-law a certain remedy, a spiritual remedy to be able to cure him of this ailment. So, uh, in the world of Chassidim, especially um, Chol Yisrael, places, is placed with very, very high regard in terms of the spiritual value uh, and 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 the way it helps develop a sense of spiritual sensitivity and cultivation of Amuna and, and Hashem. The, the Rebbe said to Rabbi Yoslavsky in the Yechidus that Hasidim are very, very careful on Chol Yisrael and Pas Yisrael. I think I mentioned that with regards to the past Year. So with regards to Chol Yisrael also, it's very, very careful. So Hasidim are very, very careful. So even in a situation where sometimes, logically, you can have the physical components of Chol Yisrael met. Like, for example, example I gave you about the video of Chol Yisrael and the, the Rabban and Paskin, that it's permissible, but the spiritual element of Chol of Yisrael would not be equal to a situation where you have a mashkiach visiting there all the time in a way of tamidi, constantly. So some people would be stringent and say that I want to have the higher level of Chol of Yisrael. It's not because Chas are trying to create different classes of in Jewish life, but there is room to be stringent um, about it because in terms from a spiritual perspective, there's room for more spiritual sensitivity in that regard. Now, if you have a, with regards to today's milking process, um, in all large creameries, it's the entire process is mechanized. The animals have a chip, and they, they have to line up, and that's how they, they track the milk and all that and the yield. So, to be able to take the animal off, to unhook it, so to speak, and put another animal in for milking is is a process. Does not cannot happen in one second. That also does help to some degree, mashkiach monitor the uh, their their process. Uh, I also want to mention that when it comes to mashkichim at at farms, there's a general challenge that all Hashem has to grapple with. These mashkichim live usually far away from a Jewish community. Sometimes it's driving distance. Preferably, you send a couple, uh, a couple that have their children already older, and uh, they can both be mashkich and mashkicha respectively. They can cover each other's shifts um, and, and cover each other. But to send someone single out to such places where there's no minion and all that, is is uh, is not such a good idea sometimes, um, because it's it's a place where it's very difficult to um, create a Jewish environment for long periods of time. So this is something that Hashem has to keep in mind when it set up of Israel. There's a story about Ibn Nachum who was a Talmud of the of the uh, of the Maggid, contemporary of the Alter Rebbe, and. We know that the Lushen in, in, in Shokhanarich is with regards to milk that was milked without a Jew presence. <laughs> milk that was milked by a non-Jew and a Jew didn't see it. And that's, what, that's what's known as Chalvakum. The story with Reb Nakh, Nakh is that someone served him Chalvakum, 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 Milk that was milked by a non-Jew. And uh, he didn't see it. He was a tzaddik and he didn't see it. So he said about him, it's <laughs> He didn't see it. It's, a, it's kind of a play on words but spiritually he didn't see it and he wasn't gonna have any connection with that. Okay, just a few other points and then I'll take questions. With regards to of Yisrael also, there are other ingredients that are made, many ingredients are made from dairy. It could be some, some lactose, milk, sugar, kisines, some proteins. I mean, all that, and that would also fall into the category that it has to be a chalvi-soil and a chalvisol soil product. Um, so with regards to chalvi-soil, you also get into a trucking issue because milk that's milked at the farm will then get trucked to a processing plant where they're gonna bottle it, pasteurize and bottle it and all that. So you have to seal up the trucks and then you have to uh, make sure that's properly monitored so that the chalvisol soil status of that particular material going to be maintained throughout the process. Okay. I'll take some questions for anybody that has questions.
1: All right. Um, that was very insightful. If anybody has questions, um, you can take it away. Uh, how's it going, Rabbi? Thank you. First of all, thank you so much for here. Just have, I guess, one question. Just, I guess, a little bit more regarding the trucks. Um, uh, When it comes to like trucks, is it like do do a sharing pay attention when it comes to Chalvishar that the truck is a truck that is only used for Chalvishar milk? Because would would there ever be a a suffix of maybe that the actual truck that's holding the milk would either be dirty or would maybe um, if the milk's there for more than twenty four hours. Um, and it has been used with other other milks before. Um, and a question of it absorbing you sir?
0: So that it's it's an issue that they have to grapple with, and the way they deal with it is in one of a few ways. First of all, as they're sending the milk from the actual farm to a processing plant, very often it's many hours away. Let's say it's four hours away. So first of all, they have to seal the truck. All entry points have to be sealed with truck seals by the like, like The hekshah will have truck seals with special numbers, and with the on it, and then a mashkiach would sign a bill of lading document or a kosher letter document that would be received on the receiving end by the receiving mashkiach so they can match it up and make sure that nothing was opened. Second from that is that if the milk is not gonna stay in the tanker, it's gonna stay in the tanker for less than 24 hours, then you're avoiding the issue of kavosh, of pickling, and uh, it's permissible to use even a, a non-kosherized truck as long as it's been properly cleaned, which they are. They, they sanitize them in between products. Um, the issue is that if you're gonna use the, it, if the, if the material is gonna sit in the truck for 24 hours, you get into a problem of covering And there's also an issue of using a vessel that's not kosherized on a routine basis constantly. So temporarily one could do that if you know for sure that the milk is not gonna sit in there for 24 hours, but if it's gonna be done on a routine basis um, or if, and, and or if there's gonna be a concern that the milk is going to sit inside the truck, then you have to be sure that it's going to be a kosherized truck. And there are tankers that are kosherized, there are truck washing stations that have a where but they kosherize vessels. And so that they can come in basically as kosher parv and then be used in this case for Chalvi's milk. Got it, thanks. Yes, sure. I
1: see somebody just posted in the chat. Um, it's a question says, practically does non-kosher milk not curdle? I would assume it's supposed to say curdle. And so yeah, just to yeah. elaborate on the question, maybe for people who, who don't understand, there's a huge, a lot of the halachas of khalavakam, especially in talking about cheese, are built around the concept that if milk turns into cheese, we know it came from a kosher animal. So I would assume the question is, is that scientifically accurate?
0: To the best of my knowledge, it is,
1: yes. So there's no, so, just to mention, so there's no such thing as, as, like non,
0: as a non-kosher cheese. You can have non-kosher cheese because the starter culture would be from a treyfa source, but the actual, um, to turn it, to make it curd, the milk itself would have to be from a kosher animal, to curd. So in the case of, um, it, it wouldn't curd otherwise. So you can have kosher milk that has a non-kosher starter culture, let's say from a trefa animal, that would make the, the cheese not kosher, but not because of the milk.
1: Got it, got it, interesting.
0: Um, anybody else with a question?
1: Yes, sir, I have, I have a question. Um, I, I heard a share last year from uh, uh, Shai Schachter describing um, a visit that his father, Herschel Schachter, uh, took to South Africa to a dairy farm and uh, he reviewed the, the functioning of the dairy farm and he was basically told that the dairy cows have a life expectancy of two and a half to three years and afterwards because of the stress of constant milking they developed these internal injuries and when they shefted the animals they found that about 10 percent of them were traits would be considered traits because of these internal injuries and their milk, those cows milk was then getting mixed with all the rest of the milk and pasteurization process, transportation process. And he tried to come up with some uh, decision about what to do with that. And he consulted, he said with uh, various post schema in Israel and the United States, but never able to come to a clear solution and consequently has not uh, consumed any dairy products for 15 years.
0: So that, that's an excellent question. Let, let me, if I could just amplify that a little bit more. Um, as I touched on earlier, when you make Chalvi Yisroh, you remove DA cows or any cows that are sick, you'll remove from the herd. Okay, so in, in in Halacha, there's a concept we don't have to be concerned about something going amiss or going wrong when we don't have any inkling of such. But the case that you described with, with Rav shachta where he did have an inkling, where he found out about that, then you have a problem. So, um, it is problematic when you have a situation where you have more than a number that's greater than shishim, greater than 1 in 60. 1 in 60 is like 1.6%. Anything higher than that, 10% is obviously way higher than that of, uh, of a population of cows that are problematic. Then how do you say it's nullified 1 in 60? It's not. So um, there are... It, it, this was discussed many, many times by by various shadim. There's a concept known as kama kama butl, which means as milk goes into a large vat, it gets nullified with a large vat, and then that contributes to the, the future numbers of nullification, which could give you one in sixty numbers if if you don't if if they don't uh, if you if you go with that concept. But in general, the short answer is that it's a problem, and I don't think anyone has a good answer for the problem. And for someone who wants to be stringent to only consume Chol milk, not because they keep Chol Yisrael, but because they're concerned about this issue, they certainly uh, have very strong elected grounds to do so. On the other hand, there's leniencies that uh, the Hechsheidim are relying upon because uh, of what I just said, like this the situation about Kamakamu But uh, but it is an issue, like for example, in some parts of the United States, you have cows that are DA at a ratio of like 7%, and there are even cases of up to 12%. So it's similar to the situation you mentioned um, in, in South America. So um, it's an issue. It's very well, very well taken. Thank you for raising the point. Thank you. Thank you. I just want to mention another point, by the way. I, I mentioned about the tankers being sealed when, when, when they're being shipped to another location. If the tanker is just going a short distance, in some cases, we allow the mashkir to drive behind the tanker, does not have to get sealed, because he's basically, he's the mashkir watching the tanker drive from point A to point B. That's just another methodology that could be used in certain situations, depending on how far they're, they're driving.
1: Interesting. Anybody
0: else? Okay, I have some more things to say then, if that's okay, Rabbi Kassaman. That's right, um, that's right, for sure. When it comes to making uh, soil milk powder, there is um, that's a whole process in and of itself. Um, there's, a, there, there's a machinery known as spray dryers, which are uh, designed to take liquid and turn them into powder substances. And these machines are very, very expensive. So to take fluid milk and turn it into powder, to, which is known as powdered milk, um you have to costure the machinery and, and go through the whole process so what the chlovy soil companies do is they make special runs maybe a few weeks at a time where they'll make chlovy soil milk powder at various places we'll, we'll bring a whole crew of mashkichim to be able to do this effectively um so that's a whole industry and a whole process in and of itself to make chlovy soil product in general is very expensive because you're dealing with um a lot of outlay of cost you need a mashkiach to meet, you have to pay salaries and you have to pay often many salaries because there's a lot of different people involved in ensuring in, in, the process is Chol Yisroel from beginning to end. Um, there's also downtime on machinery, which is expensive in and of itself. And there's also cleaning time, which is expensive as well. So this is just some things to keep in mind as to why Chol products are more expensive. In general, when you find a product that's certified on the marketplace, certainly in America and, and, and Canada, um, if it doesn't say Chol in its theory, it's not Chol because for a manufacturer to go through that whole expense and that whole effort, they're going to make sure it says the words on the, on the label to be able to capitalize on that market. Um, so that's just just a, a general point to, to, to bring out as well. Got it, got it. Have you
1: ever heard of people who exclude, who the Dafka drink Cholav Akum?
0: I've, I've never heard of people that specifically only have Chalav people There are people that rely on the of but not that they won't drink Chalav Yisrael. I've never heard of that. Um, another thing I want to mention also, by the way, when it comes to manufacturing, there's a concept that all the chesedim, I would say, it's, they all govern, they all rule by this kind of concept. They will not certify something when you have compatible ingredients, kosher and non-kosher, at the same location, at the same space, unless you have a mashkiyech So for example, if I'm doing Chalav a yogurt in a yogurt plant, and they have non-chol yogurt right next to me, um, I can do it if I'm standing there the entire time. If I'm going out every half an hour, every hour, that wouldn't qualify, because if someone could just turn around and dump some non into my into my mix, and I wouldn't know the difference. So in other words, this concept of, of going in and out every half an hour, every hour, is when you have an, an all kosher environment, but in a manufacturing setting, if I'm making ice cream, for example, if I have other lines that are not of compatible product, then I have to be very careful to make sure that there's no, you know, mixing up of products. Sometimes we seal um, pipes to make sure that you cannot transfer product from one line to another in in such a situation as well. So there's a lot of, I would say there's a lot of details that come into play to make sure that the Chal-Visrael operation is set up properly with proper care. Another thing that we might do, by the way, for example, if I'm doing ice cream and I have four lines, I'm only kosherizing one line, I might insist that the non-chol products are a different flavor, so that I know they're not, you know, I mean, they're not gonna mix into my product anyway, so I'm sealing off the pipes and, I, and, and, and I'm, I'm monitoring it, but an extra level of protection may be that they're doing a non-compatible flavor also. So you have certain uh, element of, of visible awareness that way. Got it, got it, got it. And kosherizing machinery also is a big issue with the chol yisrael, like pasteurizers, that's where you get into the whole 212 issue. Um, many years ago, a lot of manufacturers did not want to kosherize their machines uh, 212 because they would blow the gaskets and they were worried about damage to their equipment. Today, the equipment apparently is stronger, can withstand greater temperatures. Um, they do allow it, but some will allow temperatures less than 212 at kosherization. This is where you get into standards of kosherizing and what the what required. The stricter and the ones that, that uh, keep particularly will probably insist on a 212 kosherization. Some other will acknowledge that 212 is better, but sometimes they'll allow kosherizing at a temperature slightly lower than that, especially in cases where it's difficult to achieve a 212 temperature, a boiling temperature. Interesting. Right. It's also common practice in the marketplace for, for a company that, that, that sells both Chol-Visual and non-halvizual products to have different brands. So for example, Ha'olam, uh, I'm not mentioning any one company in particular for any reason, but Ha'olam has, is the brand of halvizual cheese and Migdal would be the non-halvizual brand. Okay. Um, has Natural and Kosher is a Cholvisol brand, and then Laspatitis is the non-Cholvisol brand. Different artwork and everything, just so that consumers should be aware and not get mixed up.